The Hamlet Podcast. Hello and welcome to this week's book club episode, devoted to our first of what some critics call Shakespeare's romances. I don't really know if Shakespeare ever sat down and thought, I shall write a romance. And certainly the term feels a little too small for the vast expanse of shenanigans within this play. Of all the texts we have read since this journey began back in April, the week of Shakespeare's birthday, this is the play that has made me miss the theatre the most. This is a giddily theatrical piece. On the page it can feel very wordy and busy, and it really needs an audience and a company of actors to make it come to life. Now, I'd love to start and say that the story itself is simple, but that's not at all true. At the outset, Imogen, the heroine, has married Posthumus against her father's wishes. This could be the beginning of so many of Shakespeare's comedies, parents getting in the way of young love, love that crosses the divide, a wedding that is for love instead of any other considerations. Except Imogen is the daughter of Cymbeline, King of Britain, and Cymbeline was planning a different match for her, to Clotten, her stepbrother, son of his new queen. This queen, not unlike the heroine of last week's play, doesn't even get her own name. She is a terrible person, the kind who enjoys hurting animals, and has Cymbeline completely under her thumb. There are gender-flipped echoes of Hamlet here, the princess has lost her mother, and her father has married again, to a dastardly upstart with a fondness for poison. Angered by Imogen's marriage, Cymbeline sends her husband into exile in Italy. When he gets there, he finds himself in the company of a man called Iacimo, who is very much cut from the same cloth as numerous other Shakespeare villains. He's convinced that women are never faithful, and banters with Posthumus that he would bet that Imogen won't be faithful that he himself could seduce her. Posthumus takes the bet, and so Iacimo heads for England. Imogen is made of sterner stuff. She's not at all interested, and so Iacimo has to cook up a different plan. He concocts a story about treasure, and manages to get himself sent to her chamber in a trunk. One of the most remarkable things about this play is that everyone tells the audience everything. We suffer almost from the amount of information we have that could be useful to the characters on stage. The one surprise, the only surprise that we get in the play, is Yakimo's appearance from this trunk. Imogen goes to sleep after reading about one of the worst rapes in all of literature, and she prays that she'll be kept safe from any tempters of the night. Yakimo slips out of said trunk, observes every single detail of her room and of her body while she sleeps, and then steals a bracelet from her as proof that she has betrayed her husband. Yakimo has an extraordinary speech in this scene, while he eyes everything up. It's awful and it's very creepy behaviour, but he doesn't actually rape her. Meanwhile, Clotten still has his heart set on marrying Imogen. He's a revolting figure and does not like to lose. Imogen rejects him in no uncertain terms, and after repeating her rejection aloud like the very worst kind of pantomime bully, he swears that he will be revenged. Yes, he's the kind of entitled savage who got all of his wealth and position from his parents and believes that he can take whatever he wants, and that this woman has absolutely no right to say no to him, despite the fact that she is already married. While Clotten seethes, Imogen gets very worried about having mislaid her bracelet. Posthumus gave it to her, 
and she swore to mind it, just as he swore he'd keep the ring she gave him. Thanks to the magic of travel within a Shakespearean romance, it seems, Yakimo is very soon back in Italy. He can describe in awfully clear detail the inside of Imogen's bedroom, and indeed some identifying marks on her body, and he has her bracelet. So Posthumus is convinced even more quickly than Othello that his wife is unfaithful. Another sore loser, angry about the bet but furious at this infidelity, Posthumus sends a letter to England to Pisanio, his servant, instructing him to kill Imogen. Jealous husbands are a real preoccupation for Shakespeare. Happily, Pisanio isn't quite convinced, and he has no intention of murdering Imogen. He convinces her instead to dress up as a boy and go out into the world and find this errant husband. Ordinarily, in a Shakespeare comedy, a young woman dressing as a boy is a means of self-discovery, of blossoming. But in this play, it feels as though Imogen kind of fades away over the course of her time dressed as her male alter ego, Fidele. The name means faithful. Perhaps Shakespeare felt that this busy play could do with an occasional hint. So Imogen, now Fidele, departs from the court and Pisanio sends word back to Posthumus that the job has been done. In the source text for this story, the good wife whose husband suspects her goes to the court of the Sultan of Alexandria. But Shakespeare has already started into this play about Britain and Rome, and so instead he sends Imogen to the next most exotic place, Wales. Imogen gets lost in the wilds, desperately trying to find her way to Milford Haven, and just as she reaches the end of her tether, she finds a cave. It is the home of a man called Bellarius, who is a goodly nobleman unjustly banished. He lives here in the cave with his two sons, Guiderius and Arviragus. Spoiler alert, these are actually Cymbeline's sons, kidnapped by Bellarius in revenge for this banishment. The young men have no clue about their true parentage, nor can they possibly realise that the lost young man that they now take in is, in fact, their sister. But there is a kind of loving recognition, very quickly they are prepared to die for this young man and instantly make him a part of their little family. They compliment Imogen's looks, they give her jobs, cooking and cleaning, domestic roles that might otherwise go to a woman in that world, and even joke that if she was a woman, or if he was a woman, they'd consider offering their hands in marriage. It's all very loving and romantic. The threat of incest never really becomes a concern because Fidele is, as far as they know, a boy. But before this Welsh idyll gets too happy, trouble arrives. Clotten has followed Imogen, and he is determined to get his hands on her. As he swaggers, he encounters Guiderius, and they fight, and Guiderius chops off his head. Back in the cave, Imogen hasn't been feeling well, and so she drinks a medicinal potion that the wicked stepmother gave her. And yes, we're now fully into Sleeping Beauty territory, because she appears to die but is, in fact, asleep. The queen herself thought she was giving Imogen a poison, but Pisanio saw through this wickedness and, working from the same spell book as Friar Lawrence, it seems, made a draft that makes Imogen appear dead when she's in fact asleep for a couple of days. Bellarius and her brothers are heartbroken and lay Imogen's body beside the corpse of Clotten. To her they sing one of the most famous songs in all of Shakespeare. Fear no more the heat of the sun, nor the furious winter's rages. Thou thy worldly task hast done, 
home art gone and ta'en thy wages. Golden lads and girls all must, as chimney sweepers, come to dust. Fear no more the frown of the great, thou art past the tyrant's stroke. Care no more to clothe and eat, to thee the reed is as the oak. The sceptre, learning, physic must all follow this, and come to dust. Fear no more the lightning flash, nor the all-dreaded thunderstone. Fear not slander, censure, rash. Thou hast finished joy and moan. All lovers young, all lovers must consign to thee and come to dust. No exerciser harm thee, nor no witchcraft charm thee. Ghost unlaid forbear thee, nothing ill come near thee. Quiet consummation have, and renowned be thy grave. The brothers and Valerius leave the stage, and Imogen, of course, wakes up. Clotten was actually wearing armour that he stole from Posthumus, and so she thinks that the body is Posthumus' corpse. Matters are not helped by the fact that there is no head. Juliet's fear of being in her family's vault is nothing to the extraordinary speech that poor Imogen goes through here, horrified at finding herself beside the trunk of a man in a place she thought she was safe. As if all this wasn't enough drama, the Romans now invade Britain, eager to collect an unpaid tribute that King Cymbeline owes. With nothing better to do and thinking that her husband is now dead, Imogen gets herself hired as a page with the Romans. If you're confused by all of this, don't worry. The play keeps going, and so will I. Posthumus and Iachimo both wind up coming to England as part of this Roman expedition. Somehow Posthumus has started to feel guilty, and so he switches sides to fight for Britain instead. He's got a death wish now and fights almost recklessly. Regret really is catching up with him. But this won't be the last time he switches sides. For now, the Romans are defeated, not least because despite Valerius' intentions, his sons, eager to see blood, decide to join the fight, and they do the state some service. Posthumus switches back to Roman clothes and gets himself captured, believing, clearly, that he needs to be punished. In the depths of his despair, and I'm not making this up, his dead ancestors and Jupiter himself appear to him and promise to sort things out for him by the end. In the play's final scene, something like 25 separate plot points and complications are all fixed and resolved in a mere 500 lines or so. We in the audience are certainly ready for it to be wound up, as I mentioned, we've spent the whole play burdened with enough information to help just about everyone in the story, if only we could intervene. Imogen is revealed and reunited with Posthumus, although even this reunion is complicated. Guiderius and Arviragus are revealed to be the sons of Cymbeline, and Bellarius is forgiven for having stolen them, since, in fact, he did a fine job of raising them, and he kept them out of the reach of the wicked queen. She herself is revealed to have died roaring, as we say in Ireland, revealing all her wicked deeds before she passed away. Iacomo is forgiven for his skullduggery, and Cymbeline starts to look like a real leader now that the malign influence of the dead queen has been removed. He agrees to free the Roman prisoners and to pay the tribute, and the kingdom is restored to peace and harmony. In some respects, this play is like Shakespeare's greatest hits. There are plot points and narrative echoes from several of his biggest successes and there were tropes and themes from just as many more. It's a sprawling, splashy story that really doesn't make a lot of sense on the page. But there are a few things worth considering, and I hope they start to illuminate it all a bit differently, 
maybe even shining some light from within. The play was written when King James was on the throne, he being the first king to rule over Great Britain. We've already discussed two other plays that start to think about Britain instead of England. King Lear is a play about dividing the kingdom, just as James was trying to unite it, and then Macbeth was expressly about the Scottish throne and the line of kings that goes all the way from Banquo to James himself. Now we have a play set in Britain when Cymbeline was king. For anyone who doesn't know, Cymbeline was king of Britain during the reign of Caesar Augustus in Rome. Cymbeline himself had lived in Rome and was highly favoured there, hence his having been given the option of not paying the tribute that becomes a sticking point in our story. Of much more renown is an event that happened at the other edge of the Roman Empire during the reign of Caesar Augustus, the birth of Jesus in Nazareth. Cymbeline the play has more references to classical mythology than any other I can think of, but it slightly feels like the world of Jupiter is coming to an end. His appearance is sketchy at best, and there's a feeling of an old world in decline as something new is coming. Posthumus and Imogen feel like they represent a new generation, a leap forward. So, rather negatively, does Iacimo. While much of the talk of Italy and Rome in the play feels like it's ancient imperial Rome, Iacimo is a more Machiavellian Renaissance Italian. Shakespeare's audience was used to the idea of Italy representing a Catholic, permissive, dissolute, anti-England, and certainly Iacimo is a fine ambassador for all of that. By the end of the play, he has been forgiven and learned his lesson, but his opportunism and his slippery tongue still suggest a wickedness that English audiences wouldn't forget. As for the Welsh subplot, Milford Haven was very specifically the place where Henry Tudor, soon to be Henry VII, landed in advance of his attack on Richard III. This mention would have been flattering to James, since he was likewise descended from that Henry, and through him claimed his legitimacy as King of England. So we have nods to James and his lineage, nods to a newly restored Britain that will grow and flourish in an age of peace. The ending of this play can be particularly moving. I think of all of the productions I saw by Ninagawa, the Japanese director, it was the end of his Cymbeline that was the most effective. Staged in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami that ravaged northern Japan in 2011, his production ended with a very clear image of the single pine that had withstood the disaster. There was an apologetic note in the programme that explained how they had dared to change the name of the cedar tree to a pine. It was the only word he said he'd ever changed in his career. In the aftermath of all that destruction, a community was restored and a family was reunited in a particularly beautiful finale. The play feels eerily relevant in the world as it stands today. After endlessly messy arguments over tariffs and tributes due between Britain and the mainland of Europe, an accord is reached and the hereto ineffective ruler shows himself capable of grace and decency. After a terrible journey and multiple assaults and horrific nights spent close to unwanted male bodies, a woman is believed. After being swindled and hoodwinked, a jealous man is permitted a second chance with the wife he has so easily misjudged. Despite this extremely complicated and nerve-wracking play, there are very few deaths. The Queen dies off-stage, and rather conveniently, as if there couldn't be a happy ending unless she was dispatched. 
the one person who is actually killed is Clotten. And he's a terrible, terrible person. He succeeds thanks to his parents' wealth, assumes he can grab anything he wants and call it his own, and encounter no resistance because of his position, throws wild tantrums and repeats himself like an idiot when he doesn't get his way. And then he has his head cut off for being disrespectful when his borrowed robes make him feel like a better man. It takes a particularly brave and brilliant actor to perform the scene with this moron's severed head. Some, perhaps most, audiences will laugh at it because it does look ridiculous. Others might be outraged by the violence, and others still are relieved to be rid of this spluttering buffoon and would-be rapist. It's a satisfying image at the end of a long, twisted nightmare, the first sign, perhaps, that the story will find a decent course and lead to the eventual peace and joy of the finale. This play isn't put on very often. I don't actually know if anyone has put it on in Ireland at all. If you know of a production, I'd love to hear about it. And if not, maybe someday I'll put it on myself. I was surprised this week to read so many essays in praise of the play. On my own first reading, I wasn't quite convinced by it. But no less an expert than Marjorie Garber has written very convincingly of how special and magical this play is. Beyond a romance, it seems to me to fit and transcend Polonius's descriptions of drama, something like a comical, pastoral, historical, tragical, romantical fairy tale. And occasionally, that's just what the doctor orders. For next week, we're going to read Henry VI Part Three, and see the rise of one of Shakespeare's most engaging villains, who will have his own play in the weeks to come. I'm sure, of course, you know who he might be, but just in case, I won't spoil it. Happy reading, and I'll speak to you next time.